Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Beyond Business Podcast. My name's Charles Mackay. Today, I had the absolute pleasure of interviewing, interviewing Amy Engelman, who has recently just exited her second business, and it is a fascinating story. Amy and I first met in 2016 in Boston, um, and we had a really, really interesting conversation over a couple of beers, actually. Um, and ever since then, I've been fascinated in watching and seeing how Amy's business has progressed and also her career. Um, that business um, was founded off the back of her, re- her, her previous business, which is an agency that was focusing on one particular niche that got massively impacted in a big way um, back in the later 2000s. And she had to not pivot, but change that the way that business operated um, and was able to get out of it and then start up business business uh, BPO that she just exited from. I think it's fascinating that Amy was able to build that inbound business machine um, without, you know, they were doing those a lot of those outbound tactics and it just wasn't working. So they just doubled down on building the inbound machine and how that probably has a big effect on the um, exit of a business as well. And another thing that is fascinating, she has hired over 60% of the team are actually women and have been become leaders in their industry and leaders in their space in traditionally male-dominated space. Um, so I'm going to hand over to Amy and myself for what I hope you enjoy is a really good conversation. Amy, what a pleasure it is to have you on this conversation. So tell me, where are you sitting on this fine Monday morning? <laughs> well, I'm very fortunate to uh, be in a little coastal town in New South Wales, actually not too far from you, Kingscliff. So, uh, sun is shining uh, and yeah, no complaints really. Amazing, amazing. How long have you been at Kingscliff for and how, like, what was the trigger for you to move there? Yeah, so we've been down here about four and a half years and um, part of the trigger was around I guess wanting to step back from being customer facing uh, in our business, but also just wanting to test out a bit of a lifestyle change or sea change while running our business remotely. So yeah. we did it for um, for a year, you know, kept our house in Brisbane, said we'll see how it goes. And then before that year was was out, we were like, no, 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 we're staying. Like this is now our home. So amazing. It's um it's fascinating. So when was that? Like two, uh, 2000 and wait, 2014, something around then? Yeah, around 14, 15. Um, and it was not long after um, kind of we kicked our, our business off, which was late 2013. Um, and, you know, one of the things that it did do was it stops you from doing all those little, I don't know, like coffee catch-ups and like yep. just, just things that people expect, I guess, these days in business or prior to to COVID-19 in business that they expect those sorts of bits and yeah. pieces and you add those all up in a month of all of those informal networking or coffee catch-ups and yeah it forced us to scale our business better but it also gave us more time. Yeah wow especially with a young family. Um, amazing so let's um let's let's rewind the gears a, few, a, a little bit so um, from Brisbane originally is that right? Yeah, Brisbane and Gold Coast uh, most of my life, yeah. Yeah, cool. So um, what got you into business? Where was your first business venture and what did it look like? Yeah, so in my uh, late 20s, I was in corporate and I really felt like something wasn't quite 
rush in terms of where my career was headed and mm. my uh, both my parents were very entrepreneurial so I took a sideways step out of corporate into almost contracting in mm-hmm. marketing services which very quickly led to um, to, to grow a business. So I started uh, growing a marketing agency with the help of an amazing business coach who kind of gave me that little mindset push that I needed to go mm-hmm. from a contractor into building a business. So that was fun and that focused mostly on the telecommunications services. Um, and interestingly, back then in 2008, I ran that business remotely. So I made the decision not to have offices, even though... Wow. I was growing an agency, not to have people, you know, coming together every day to work on the client work um, and found these amazing, um, I called them marketing mums, although not all of them were mums. They were women who'd been in marketing roles who wanted to return to work but didn't want to commute to the city. So, you know, the foundation for my staff and therefore the value that we could give hmm. to those clients was these amazing marketers that, hmm. are, that all work from home. So, yeah, it was quite unique. Now it sounds very regular and normal, of course, but back in 2008, yeah. it was a bit different. Yeah, wow, that's that's fascinating. So how long did that business run for? So I ran that till 2015, um, and it was that business that um, took me to the Philippines and really opened my eyes to what was happening in, you know, outside of Australia and, and happening globally with, Mm. Um, global resources and, and hiring people offshore. So, um, and it was really through an instance where my marketing agency was struggling. You know, what I was finding is that we had a very quick decrease in revenue due to mm-hmm. some circumstances outside of our control. So, we had a 22% drop in revenue almost overnight, and I wow. had to find a way to lower my costs and to mm. almost kind of pivot business and pivot the staff um and so that took me to the philippines and then subsequently started another business at the same time so i ran the marketing agency um put it under management and then exited that in 2015 and i started my philippines business in 2013 so i had an overlap where I yeah wow wow that's that's phenomenal and doing two separate things at one time is i can only imagine how busy you were so with the marketing agency looking at it in you know 2008 to 2015 what was that business you know other than probably bringing on you know lots of marketing collateral for clients and all that sort of thing but what was the core problem that you identified within that business that you ended up solving for your clients yeah so a lot of those clients in that particular niche wanted and needed great marketing help but they were in that in between where they couldn't manage the budget for a full-time marketing person so we were that outsourced solution and we were able to help educate and then put in place campaigns that help derive revenue and profits and Mm. you know luckily because we were working in a niche we could see what was working and then we would apply that across across so yeah it was it was successful and it was um you know it was relatively lean so we didn't have to carry a lot of costs because we didn't have that overhead which means that, that smaller businesses could access quite senior uh, help at a, at a mm-hmm. really kind of a, a value price point yeah that that makes sense and when as that business evolved in um you know 2015 you were able to exit it did the problem so, like shift at all through that um you know as that business grew Look, it didn't, the, 
the core thing that we were doing for those clients didn't um, necessarily change, but the way in which we were delivering that value did. So we were yeah. early days was more traditional um, sort of forms of marketing and advertising, and then digital was really coming into play in that era. So there was a big switch in the way that we had to go about helping generate revenue and leads and um, help grow the business. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So talking we're sort of going to end up today talking about two businesses and your career journey in a nutshell which is it is fascinating as well and we had the pleasure of meeting at inbound i think in 2016 was it 2016 is that four years ago like wow um and it was a fascinating conversation we had around you know obviously with that business you were working then it was you know you were providing outsourced services to businesses in australia and the US. Um, with my business, I've got outsourced people and partners that I work with. And some of the challenges that go with that, um, people don't really understand it. They think that you just give a scope of work or a project to someone and it's just going to happen. Um, and I'm sure you've got hundreds of stories around how that doesn't actually, you know, enable or doesn't happen in those ways. Um, but going from the marketing agency into providing those outsourced services, um, what was the opportunity you saw, like, with, with you obviously offshored your um, marketing agency and sent that offshore to the Philippines, but what got you into actually starting, you know, this offshore services business? What was the main driver behind it? Yeah, I guess, firstly, um, I had a preconceived idea of, of best talent. So I had this um, very insular view that, um, you know, the best talent was in Australia and the best marketers doing the, the best work was in Australia. So firstly, mm. it was just a, a like a complete shift of mindset, which I think then as entrepreneurs creatively, you know, your mind is open to new opportunities. Mm. And I guess what I was seeing in terms of trends is, is the globalisation of the workforce. So mm. no longer could an Australian business just choose to have someone in Australia, they could choose somewhere in the world. So it was this concept of world's best talent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I really love the fact that there were developing countries where maybe the employment, you know, levels were a lot lower, the education was still at a really high standard, really motivated, you know, motivated people that had good educations. Mm. Um, and that we could really look to, I guess, spread a bit of that employment opportunity. So not necessarily shrinking stuff, levels in Australia, but opening up a more varied workforce to include mm. include offshore, which, you know, happened to be a developing country. So, you know, when I went to the Philippines and I met the people, I felt very good about extending that employment opportunity into a developing mm. country. Um, mm. Yeah, and that was part of the drivers. Mm. I think it's, a, um, you know, obviously with what's going on with COVID, everyone's saying you need to localise everything and bring everything back to Australia. And I agree with that too. But I also disagree with so much outsourcing that has been done where it's just been for the price. Like, oh, let's just ship it to that country or that country because it's cheaper. So can you tell us a little bit about a couple of the stories that you've seen and how that is like the incorrect way to think of partnering with people and let's doesn't I, I actually don't think it means internally in Australia or externally anywhere around the world. Like you partner with someone, there's got to be value in it. Um, so what can you share about cost-based, um, you know, partnerships? 
Yeah, I think there's a real um, view that offshore equals um, cheap and that people are going mm. to, to save money and that's the reason why they do it. Of course, yes, there's cost savings, but I think for businesses, like any partnership, you still have to invest time in training staff and bringing them up to speed. Mm. Um, so I think where where organisations are winning at the moment that do have that global footprint and variety of teams mm. is when you look at things like business continuity and the environment that we're in now, mm. they can they can start to have staff and move work around in various countries and to various people and sometimes even various time zones to help mm. keep things ticking over. Mm. Um, so, you know, I've seen plenty of businesses that have gone down that road of, oh, hang on, I think it's it's cheap. And then where they're actually looking at it ends up being, well, who's the best person to send this work to for various reasons, for productivity, efficiency. And yeah. so then it's kind of like the light bulb moment. It's like, oh, okay, this may or may not be, you know, cheaper depending on where the staff member is and how much time is invested in training and development. But I'm actually putting the right work in the right place. So that's, I think, where businesses really get it. Like, hang on, I can get someone in the Philippines who loves to do this particular job day in, day out, mm. um, particularly around compliance. Like I was talking about a client I worked with in NDIS who's just got mm. a huge amount of compliance and checking. And, you know, that work was not about sending it somewhere cheaper. It was that the Australian staff just got jack of it. Yeah. <laughs> they had to leave their job. Yeah. And, so for them, it was that staff retention issue in Australia that drove them to go, hang on, we've got to find an alternative. And so, yeah, it's it's more about finding the right person and linking that to the right task, wherever they might be. And sure, added bonus, if there's bottom line savings, there's efficiency, you can reinvest that cash. Most people reinvest it back into their business anyway, yeah. um, which helps grow employment, you know, in all cases. But yeah, it's... Cost is the is sometimes the, the factor to attract a business, but good businesses actually find that it's way, way more than that. Yeah, it is it is fascinating. And I couldn't agree with you more on, um, you know, when you start problem solving and putting the right person in the right seat with the right skill set and remove the barrier to location. Um, and it's, it's only going to escalate at the minute with COVID. Like people are going to go, you know what? I don't need someone in Melbourne. I don't need someone in Perth. I don't need someone in Tasmania. Like, it really ma- doesn't really matter. There's the technology out there to be able to enable people to do the work. Um, it's just letting go of that limiting belief, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I think it's going to be super exciting coming out of COVID and seeing how that changes. And hopefully what it does for people who are in, you know, various roles in Australia is it actually helps them work on the things that they love. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I- and that, yeah. Totally agree. And, you know, as a client goes through this transformation too, call it, you know, I don't like the word digital transformation, but people are actually doing it now and going, you know what, it works as opposed to seven or eight years ago when, you know, the big tech companies were saying it works, but it didn't work. Um, This actually works now. But, you know, instead of culling your workforce because you don't want them doing those mundane tasks anymore you look at enabling them and training them and upskilling them into the new ways of working and then you don't lose all that ip um i think that's the way that if you've got a really big workforce where you're looking to you know digitally transform it's like well don't get rid of your talent you need to think of other ways to leverage that talent um 
and one thing I think about, and you see this in politics a lot with the coal industry, it's like, why don't they spend 10 years educating coal on solar or, you know, green energy? Because they've all got the skill. You just need to retrain them. Um, and then jobs won't actually decrease. They'll go up. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I agree 100%. Yeah. So um, with the offshoring business, the problem that you were solving, you know, is obviously you can enable, um, you know, finding the right talent, sit in the right seat and doing that work and then enable a business to hopefully grow a bit more efficiently. What were some of the problems that you saw as that business grow and where clients had actually worked this out were doing and starting to pull the levers on you guys for? Yeah, so the successful ones were really treating, you know, partnering with us to treat their offshore team just like they would part of their business. So finding really innovative ways to do their, you know, morning huddle, for example, you know, yeah. and including their offshore staff in that, finding really cool ways to have quarterly events and include their staff, you know, in those sorts of things. Um, spending time face-to-face. Some businesses even invested in bringing those staff out to Australia for training, um, changing their job scope, so moving moving them like any role you want to grow in a role and take on more you know, more tasks that are that are challenging and interesting. So upskilling the staff and taking them to more senior positions. Yeah. Um was was absolutely, you know, evident throughout the, the journey. Um, you know, focusing on on the scalability of their business. So having some junior staff that then became pioneers that created systems and processes mm. and, you know, set those standards as the company grew. Um and look, for us as a, as a service provider, we found over the years that we had to really pivot to offer more to our clients and really understand the industries that we were strong in. So when we first mm. started the business, we could pretty much service anyone. We had good quality staff, you know, a really good premium product, lots of service touch points to make sure that the customer got it right. But the mm. landscape became more competitive. So as a business, we had to pivot to say, okay, how do we add more value and one of the ways we did that is to pick some industry niches that we thought we could do great work and actually pre-train and give our staff that industry knowledge mm. and do that in advance of actually partnering with a particular client. And lots of that was done in software. So, of course, you know, cloud software became absolutely crucial to yeah. what those staff were doing. Yeah. So, you know, we would then find industries, find the common software tools that those industries were using, and we yep. would pre-train those staff to get them to a much higher level of output and understanding. And that was mm. one of our kind of, that was our strategic pivot. We um, stopped that all and sundry approach. So mm. our customer acquisition started and our content development started to focus on these particular industries. And as a result, our cost per lead went down, our cost per acquisition went down, we were able to close opportunities quicker. Faster, um, yep. And it made a significant difference to the, you know, to the bottom line. Yeah. So that was one of the insights for us as we scaled, one of the challenges we had as the landscape became more competitive. Yeah. And over in the Philippines, so majority of your team, if not was all the team in the Philippines at that point? Yeah, we ended up with about twelve in Australia and about yeah. um 50 internal staff in the Philippines and um, company size all up was about 420. Yeah, yeah, it's it's fascinating the scale of how quickly that can grow. Um, what were some of the 
eye-opening points for you and also the most satisfying components of that business um, that you didn't think were going to come? Um. <laughs> <laughs> so probably eye-opening other than culture, which is, you know, which is um, fairly straightforward and, and, you know, you would expect. The one that I didn't expect was process, just how... Um, astute we needed to be around process and QA so mm. not not making assumptions about how well a process would be um, would be rolled out or stuck to or complied mm. to over long periods of time mm. so that that surprised me it's just a different um, different way of thinking in a different way to ensure that staff are all on the same page and undertaking the task and activities at the same volume efficiency proficiency that's mm. required so that I think that made me a better better entrepreneur because I had mm -hmm. to get super super focused on process yeah um, and I <laughs> I love this saying I, I looked around all sorts of corners so I learned to just look around every corner, you know, as we scaled and to never assume that once I put a process in place that it was, it was, you know, done, tick the mm, box, mm. I'm, I'm on to the next one. So yeah. probably gave my team the, the chits and <laughs> frustrated them. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, that was really, yeah, like I said, it, it made me a better operator. Um, but that was one I didn't see coming is just the requirement to really nail that process. Yeah. Is it true too that in the Philippines, like I think where in Australia we can be a slightly different as a culture where the process is there, but we'll just cut it out. Nah, well, we don't need to do that. Uh, she'll be right mentality <laughs> as opposed to in the Philippines. It's literally if it's documented and there, I'll do it. And if that process is wrong, well, I'll do it anyway. I won't put my hand up and say this is incorrect. Yeah, I think that's the majority and it really comes down to not that that person doesn't have the ability, it's that in Australia, I think problem solving, we're really good problem solvers. So, mm -hmm. you know, if we've got instruction A and C, we'll pretty much work out what B is and, and we'll just go do it. Um, yeah. There are some cultural norms that mean like spelling out A, B and C, you know, directly and and really well means that there's confidence to keep going and, and, and do it at that level to then mm. sometimes ask for help and say, oh, I kind of get A and C, but I'm not really sure about B, that sometimes can be a cultural barrier. It's not that that person isn't smart or they, you know, they can't work it out, but they may not feel confident checking in and raising mm. that because it's, mm. it's, you know, it might be seen to be inconveniencing me because you're asking me to re-explain it. So, so understanding those sorts of things can really help with making sure that, you know, those sorts of instances almost never occur. Mm. Um, but, you know, coming back to that question about the most rewarding sort yeah. of experience that I had over there, one of my first employees in the Philippines was a, a woman named Mitch. She um, came in to do data reconciliation. Like I'm talking about the simplest job of like cross-checking data um, and she had people management experience before for a Philippines company and she was just a standout performer. And mm. over the course of, you know, five and a half years, she basically became, you know, the most senior person in that business. She was responsible for over 200 people. Wow. And she was the sort of person who would always think ahead, who would be able to see where those difficulties may lie 
jump in, retrain and readjust, coach, mm. um, and you know, incredibly senior and incredibly trusted, you know, person in this in the senior leadership team over the years. So mm. I think it's like anything when it comes to managing people in the Philippines, you need to be aware of those cultural norms and how they might get in the way of how yeah. you assume something will go. But there's yeah. talent there that you can really take from the absolute ground level right up to senior management. Yeah, that is amazing to hear that the amount of fostering and also on the flip side, how she's just embraced that and gone, you know what, I want to get on this journey and go with you. Because um, I think that's a really rewarding thing for any business owner that you can create a place and an environment where people are going to succeed. It's not just the boss, oh, you know, the boss that's going to be the successful one. It's like everyone can be successful in a business these days as long as there's the framework in place. So that's that's awesome. Um, so flipping into the business that business the offshoring one and from you had a start and a pretty clear end date um i think it's a you know especially today um we're going into this and i've talked about this previously on a few podcasts that you know you're the custodian of a business you come in and you should leave it in a better place um i think a lot of ceos this is much bigger companies would have they'll have a window where they know they're in and they're out and they'll try and get as much as they possibly can out of that business without necessarily setting it up for success down the track. So having built, started and built and then exited a business and you, you know, by the sounds of it, have left it in a better place, what would be something that you would share with someone that wants to exit a business? I'm not saying that that's always the best thing. It really depends on the individual goals of that person, but so that it sets up for success, what are the things that you have to do as a leader to make sure that that business will keep going and not just be acquired or, you know, shut down as soon as you're out the door? Yeah, well, there's all the usual, you know, things that you would expect great people, you know, building for scale. So having those processes so you can step out of the business one day and it still runs because you don't want to yeah. get stuck in it forever once you decide you want to leave. Yeah. Um, great great technology, of course, that underpins that. But, you know, they're the things that you'd expect any good business that needs to exit have. But for us, our strength of our business came down um, to our ability to have a marketing and sales engine that attracted mm -hmm. um, people to come to our business that were interested in our products and services. So... Mm you know, different buyers look for different things, um, you know, and different exits have got all sorts of strategic value. Um, but being a marketer by trade, I think what we ended up doing, at, you know, at Vipo, which was highly successful, is we built this sales, sales and marketing engine that someone mm. could pick up and actually apply to other businesses. Yeah. So, you know, yes, it was, it was there. You could prove that it runs without the founder. You could prove yeah. that it's a system. You can yeah. prove that it has value. You can prove yeah. exactly the inputs and outputs. If you spend X, you'll get Y. Yeah. So I think that was like at the core from a commercial point of view about, you know, what was of value. I think on a more personal and professional level, the thing that I'm really, really proud of in the business is that in the Philippines, there's not a, a strong history of female leadership in mm -hmm. Um, corporations it's still an environment where you know there is um, it's not that women leaders are not welcomed it's just that it's it's not as 
frequent. You know, there's still a, a very, very small minority of senior women mm. In, mm. in corporate and government positions. And so I don't know whether it's because I was a female founder that I ended up with a female majority senior leadership team and a female mm. majority business. Mm. But we wow. had sixty we had sixty percent um of of the all of the whole business were women. We had a majority female board. Wow. Um we had a majority female managers down through the management team. And it's not because we had any policy or any sort of gender specific goals or it's just the way it fell and I don't know whether um yeah whether it was just being a female founder and the the values and the ethics that I brought to that organization was a fit and I attracted a certain type of people that came to the mm. business that felt that they would have good career opportunities because it was a female founder um but I think that's one of the things that I'm most proud of and and you know the women that I worked with in in some of those positions were very, you know, they were kind of groundbreaking in the Philippines, unmarried, about to hit wow. 40, you know, wow. in, a, in a country where if you're not married off by 25, there's something wrong with you. And by choice, they're career women. Yeah. Um, and so that's something I'm super proud of, you know, their people, their relationships that I'll have some of those, you know, ladies for the rest of my life. Yeah, um, wow. Yeah, and that's probably what I'm most proud of from a from a more kind of, personal standpoint yeah that's the two points you brought up are fascinating um and it's been an interesting um thing i've talked about quite a while around building a sales and marketing machine that is not people reliant and also potentially advertising reliant like there's no single source of break failure in there um and once you build that machine what that does to the evaluation of a business it's really hard to put a number on it um and that you know it doesn't take three months to build it takes five to years to build um, <laughs> um but it's awesome to hear that you know that was one of the, the main drivers around it that you know you built this machine that was it's going to last um and it is set up for success so anyone that acquires and hopefully sees the value in that and replicates it across other units is going to grow the business organically and it's going to compound too um what did that you know, the first year versus second and third year from your marketing internally look like? Did it did it start to compound over time? Yeah, it it took time absolutely. And look, I'm the first to admit that it was um it was pretty average the first couple of years of business. We were actually doing majority disruptive marketing. Um, yeah. We were doing cold calling. We were doing cold reach out. Sure, we had great referral network, and our best clients, of course, came from referrals and word of mouth. Um, but the uh, it was probably two years into business that we said, no, that's it. We're just stopping this outbound. Um, mm. We don't believe it's sustainable and fully invested in the inbound methodology. So we then, you know, got our software and our people um, in line and fully committed to, you know, taking on HubSpot as a software tool. But more importantly, software aside, it's the methodology that sat behind us that as marketers 100%. we like went okay great now we've actually got something to work to it puts everyone on the same page it doesn't create an environment that myself as the founder is pushing down a view mm. of how we do things it's just like yeah. here's the methodology doesn't it make sense to everyone yeah great now let's get on the bus 
and yeah. you know and anytime someone gets you know tries to get off the bus or go down this path we go no hang on let's go back to the methodology <laughs> this is what yeah. we're doing get back on get back on our bus because we're not going yeah. back to that way yeah. um so yeah and then it it ended up for us because we had that transparency of data around you know what our costs were and I I love data like as a marketer I've I've kind of enjoyed you know probably my product marketing days just as much as I have my my comms marketing days so you know we look through that data we get a really good feel of how we were performing so our cost per lead and our cost per acquisition became our two most important numbers for our marketing team um, and then our conversions was, was obviously a shared metric between marketing and sales. And yeah. pretty much every conversation I had with our marketing team was about those three metrics. And sure, there was all this other stuff that happened underneath that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we were able to reduce our cost per lead and our cost per acquisition increase, our conversion, but at the same time launch into new niches where we didn't have mm. an established brand mm-hmm. presence. So. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is unusual. You could probably comment more than me because you probably see a lot more data than what I do, but that's that's at the crux, getting that right to create value for the business. That's that's where I saw the, yeah, that's where it all kind of derived from. Yeah. I I think there's there's two really interesting points to it and asking me on, you know, the data I see. There's two components. You've got to get it. if the business owner or the leadership team doesn't get it, they're going to always default back to the old way because that's what got them to where they are. And they'll go back and do that tactic and they'll keep doing it. And you're never going to punch through that ceiling doing that. Um, And then, you know, having a methodology, like even the inbound methodology, it's, it's still there. The tactics have changed, but the, the methodology at the core is still there. And, you know, it just makes so much sense. Um, especially going forward into what you know the world's going to start doing you if you're if you expect to be able to disrupt and call call call, call people you're just gonna you're gonna die so um those two things you got to believe in it and then not go back to the old way and then have a methodology and just go with it um and you you're not going to get to where you went you thought you were going to get to but it'll probably compound over time and that's the piece that's interesting the hockey stick does happen um but you've just got to suck it up and get into it and, you know, fail, fail fast, learn and keep going. Yeah. And I remember the days when we first started inbound, we were like, two leads today. Yes. <laughs> or like one lead. Awesome. And the sales, like the BDMs would be like, oh, wow, we got an inbound lead. And, you know, and then we get to the point where we're lead scoring and you, you're getting, you know, you're getting that volume. You can start concentrating yeah. on quality and, you yeah, know, and then you then you hear things from sales like, oh yeah, I um, you know, I, ha- I had a look at at the the history of that customer on our website, and I think it's a really strong lead, or it's not a strong lead. You think, you know what, guys? Do you remember when you didn't even have leads <laughs> being handed yeah. to you from marketing? Like, stop assessing whether the lead's good or not. Just run with it. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Um, and f- so flipping into that personal component that you were most proud of, um. I think that is, you know, truly fascinating um, for, for me personally. I get a lot of satisfaction out of helping people that um, that's what I do. <laughs> like at the end of the day, I just help people. And if you can help people in different ways, different aspects, different cultures, you'll learn so much. Um, so that's, you know, amazing and full credit to you to, um, you know, being that leader of 
potentially that country and also in Australia. I, I don't think there's enough female leaders that are look like there's plenty of female leaders. Don't get me wrong, but there's not enough. There should be more, um, and they do get stamped down. But I know that that's been a big shift and it's it's evolving over time. Um, but personally, I love working with people that think think differently. Um, and if you're in an organisation where it's all of the same people what do you think you're gonna get you're gonna get exactly the same answer so um and it's really interesting i had a conversation with a client not that long ago where he did at the time he didn't realize but everyone in their whole team their leadership team in sales were all the same personality they liked the three or four things they're all identical and um when you flip that and go you know what i want completely different people to look at things in completely different ways then you can't actually hire people in the same spot with the same, you know, thing. What you need is something unique, which is generally values, which value base will bring the right people into the business. Um, so is that something that you had established very early on with Vipo that it was like, all right, we know our values, we know who we stand for and we know what type of client we're going to work with? Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's funny how, how some things that, you know, are important to you as a founder starts to flow down in your values because as the founder you get to kind of design the values and influence them as, you know, as, yeah. as the way that you, uh, you know, you like them. But, you know, some of them, some of, you know, for us there was all the usual stuff around diversity and teamwork and, and but one of the ones that I loved was around sophistication. So, mm. you know, that was one of our values. And so when it came to do something like have a look at, I don't know, the office furniture or something like that and we look at it and, you know, our finance manager would say, well, here's the budget option and here's the other option. And I'd say, well, well Mary Lou, what do, you, what do you think is more sophisticated? She'd say, oh, definitely this one, you know. And I'd go, okay, great. Put <laughs> money on that one because it looks better. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, it was very important. We did hire to those values as well. So our recruitment team yeah. got really good at starting to find those people who align to those values, um, but then also putting some things in place for all of our managers to start to talk about those values and actually create behaviours and then get mm -hmm. to an environment where the values aren't just things you put on the wall, but it's how we act and talk and work every day. So, you know, looking to reward and recognise alignment to those values but yeah. also get to a point where when someone was working outside of those values that you hope that others actually go, you know what, that's not the yeah. Bipo way. And, yeah. you know, that's the kind of, that's one of the pinnacles in terms of when, you, when you're trying to scale those values mm. to actually look at the day-to-day -day behaviours and say, well, mm. hang on, guys, are we as a team, are we working to this? It's not just words on a wall. Is this mm. how we operate, how we think, mm. how we treat each other? Um yeah, so and always work in progress, right, in any sort of business. But, yeah, it was important to us. I think the thing that I learned over time is spending the time in recruitment yeah. to, to have a values-based approach. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I couldn't agree with you more. And, I, you know, for our business, we actually find when there's – it's a balancing act. There's always – any relationship, there's a balancing act. And if there's a break or the balance becomes too high, there's generally a value disconnect um, mm. generally goes back to our values as well. So flipping into from you getting started to getting out of that was all in, you know, exiting that business. Was that your, compared to the journey that you'd 
played out like how bumpy up and down was it as opposed to what <laughs> as opposed to what you'd set out to do <laughs> yeah I think when I was starry-eyed in the Philippines for the first time I was like wow this is incredible you know Australian businesses are going to love you know expanding their teams into the Philippines and you know everything's inexpensive so it's going to be a really you know easy cash flow ride and of course that's never never the way any business grows it's it's not easy and you always um, spend twice as much as it takes, uh, takes twice as long as well than what's on your business plan. But um, look, I think, I think for us, it, growing the business got to a point from a, from a family point of view that it felt like it needed a, a different approach to, to scale it and take it to that next level. So mm. particularly needed some extra support for expanding globally. And mm-hmm. as the CEO, I after six years, I'd had um, two kids during that time. So my, my son was just um, a year when I started that business and then I had mm. my second son. So, you know, the international travel and the, the kind of um, pressure is not really the right word, but probably the expectations that I had mm. for myself Mm. Um, in in growing, I got to that point where I was like, you know what, I think it's time. So mm. I didn't really know where that time was. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. you generally, you have to have your IP fairly well developed, and you have to have something of value. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think I think there was plenty of ups and downs, and plenty of roller coasters, and probably three big cycles in terms of the growth and and like a pair back and then another step up and then a pair back and then another step up so yeah some of those were learnings like pivot doing that industry pivot some things are things outside of our control so like an earthquake that yeah, you wow. know that kind of brought us back a bit on our growth and and you know added to our cost base before we could jump up again so you know there's always factors that come into play um and i would say it's almost like every two years there would be mm. that that step one step back before there was those three steps forward forward yeah but i think that's business in general i mean i found that over the journey it's a it's a roller coaster so yeah mm. it's i'm not sure whether I, I think i probably intended to be in the business longer you know mm. maybe seeing it through to 10 years but i just felt personally that it was it was time for me to maybe just step back on those expectations for myself um and then that improves our our family life and probably give the business the greatest opportunity to grow to give yeah. it to someone who who could take it to that next level that next level that yeah uh t- totally i think there's a point too where any business will get to a ceiling depending on the founder how much time they can put into that growth and there's I reckon I'd like not been there, but when you start juggling family and life, like you, I, 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 if it was me in that position, I couldn't put my family below the business. Um, my family's going to be number one. So um, that would be really challenging. And then how do you, if you're going to make that decision, then how do you get the people around you to do those supporting roles? Um, sometimes it means someone else needs to buy it or take it over, which makes total sense. Um, You've sort of already pretty much answered this question, but around you know what you're trying to do thing trying to do to make everything better in a business scenario. So obviously being a leader of you know within the Philippines and then back in Australia from a, um, you know a, a female leader. But 
was that your intention or was that something that just came up and you were like, wow, this is something that I'm really passionate about and going forward, is that something that you're going to keep going, you know, to be working on? Yeah, it's, it's not something that I did intentionally around, you know, the hiring strategy in the Philippines. It just, it just kind of played out that way. Um, mm. But looking back on my career and even in my marketing agency, I think the way that I set that business up was very female supportive just because of the flexibility and the remote working. Um, yeah. And, you know, that, that will stay with me and it's not now it's just parents in general, right? So it's, it's yeah. working parents, how can you create great employment opportunities for working parents? Yeah. Um, you know, for now, for the short term, I have a very um, probably insular and maybe selfish view of how I'm building the business to kind of build around my lifestyle. So that's, yep. you know, the, the lifestyle that I want for our family is kind of at the top. And then, yeah. you know, things underneath that fall where I can add value for clients. We've got a much, much smaller employee base. So we're going yeah. to have a smaller number of people around us, probably more, um, you know, freelancers, some consultants, mix of part-time, you know, but all remote. So, yep. you know, again, managing, managing, you know, the, the business around what kind of works for us. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty, to be brutally honest, it's, it's very selfish at this stage because it's all about just, you know, at the core doing what's right for our family and our lifestyle. Um, yeah. There is some other work that I do informally, like I, I mentor some, some other people, I'm taking on some advisor roles, so yeah. looking at um, not board positions but advisors, so other entrepreneurs who are growing and exiting their business mm -hmm. um, and going on advisory boards, which I'm, I'm really looking forward to. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, and it's kind of keeping it small and um, small and, uh, and low-key in a way. <laughs> I, I like it. I like it. So if you were to sitting on those advisory boards now and starting to give people advice now, it's a big question. This is a big question. You know, what's the one tip you would give someone, but if you're really looking to grow a business or grow your career, like where, where does the fundamental source come from that you've got to get lined up before you're actually going to move forward? What do you think that one thing would be? I think it's mindset. So, uh, you know, it's not, it's not a practical tip and that, you know, you've got to have the cash or the business plan or the marketing engine. I think it starts with mindset and that's been my personal journey, moving out of employment and into business at every step of the way, it's been yeah. a mindset challenge. So before I even grew a business that was, you know, a couple of mil, you know, I went to a... Um, I went to this amazing session with a guy called Mark Moses and he was talking about mindset in this way. He said, add a zero. So if you're thinking about, thinking about how that business is 100 million, like open your mind to mm. that. And sure, you, it's not necessarily about hitting that number. Don't get me wrong. It's not about the pressure or the expectation. It's about opening your mind to see yourself to be able to do that and starting yeah. to visualise and picture and think and strategize. So, you know, I think mindset is the number one thing. I think any time I've struggled with motivation, not knowing where I was fitting in a business mm. or in my career journey, mm. um, I've always sought out, um, you know, that, that piece around getting my mind fit and focused mm. On, mm. on what that next step is. 
and you know pivotal in my early business phase to actually help me unlock my entrepreneurial spirit was working yeah. with the coach on mindset and just to help me give me that push and ask the right questions. So that's yeah. where it, that's my main my main uh, piece of advice yeah. is around that. And then the rest will flow. Like there's and there's lots of other external advice and external resources and coaching and education and all that sort of stuff. But mm. you've got to get your mindset um, you know ready and and yeah that's step one. Yeah, yeah. I, I love it and I couldn't agree more. I think the the piece that we're in that really interesting phase is so many coaches out there now. It's like, who do you listen to? Who don't you listen to? But at the end of the day, you take your bits and act on it. That's where you're going to actually move forward. Um, not just look and read and watch. You've got to act as well because um, it's your journey, yeah? So you can't expect anyone else to do it for you. Um, a coach is going to whip you, but they won't go and do the hard work. Um, so, yeah, I think that is a really, really powerful tip. Um Looking into the future, um, what does you know the future for Amy look like and your family? Tell us a little bit about your your current um, daily routine. I, I do see that you've been out in the out boat a bit, doing a bit of rowing. Is that something you did back yeah. when you're at school? Or yeah, yeah, it's a sport I've done on and off. Um, school was the kind of most time I spent on the water. Um, luckily, I live near the Tweed River, which is just gorgeous. So. Um, just getting back into spending time rowing, um, which is amazing. I've kicked off my niche agency, which is Footside Group, which is just working with um, a small group of clients on their growth, which is fantastic. Vital awesome. positions and, yeah, just enjoying the lifestyle. I mean, we've been challenged at the moment with homeschooling and a bit of a change yeah. to uh, to the regular schedule. So, just been adjusting around that um but yeah really I'm in that fortunate position where it's kind of life and work by design so yeah. really thinking yeah. carefully about you know where I spend my time who I spend yeah. my time with including in business um yeah. and yeah having like-minded people that work together I really love now that I can kind of apply my passion and my energy to others businesses without necessarily being the founder entrepreneur that is looking to grow a massive mm -hmm. company again mm -hmm. I love that I mm -hmm. can work with others to kind of take a piece of the challenge and yeah so it's kind of I'm, I'm living through them I'm living the entrepreneurial life through them without having to uh you know to take on take on you know risk and and major major challenge so uh, I really love that, and I'm yeah. Some of the people I'm working with, I've known for a few years as well, which is great. Yeah, um, so I feel very comfortable um, in that, and yeah, that's that's not planning too far into the future, keeping things pretty fluid. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and just just uh, looking after health as as well, like I said, training and yeah, relaxing. I love it. I love it. Awesome. Oh, Amy, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today. I think your experience and your um, journey you've been through in business is amazing. And now for you to be at that place where you can give back and help others um, is awesome. So I'll be, I'll be looking out to see where you are in the next few years because I'm sure that entrepreneurial bug won't, <laughs> won't hide for too long. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, awesome. Well, thank you, so, thank you so much for having me uh, as a guest. Looking forward to, to listening to more of the episodes and learning more with you as well. Cool. Thanks, Amy. Appreciate it.